The reading this morning can be found on page 1168 in your Bibles, and it's from the book of the letter to the Galatians, and I'm reading from verse 1 of the first chapter. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion <coughs> sorry, and are trying, <coughs> are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we, we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings? Or of God? Or am I trying to please people? <clears throat> if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. and let's pray. Lord Jesus, through the written word and the spoken word, may we know your living word today, Lord. Amen. Morning. Um, for those who don't know me, perhaps are visiting this morning, my name is Matt. Um, I've been come to St. Swithin since I was very small. Not a lot's changed. Um, but most recently, actually, for about four years. Um, and generally, when I speak in my sermons, I like to talk about vacuum cleaners. Um, robot vacuums, anything really that's going on at work. Um, largely some shameless product placement and promotion. Um, and today is no different, actually. Um, there's been a big, it's been a big change in my life. I get emotional now. It's been a big change in my life recently. Some of you may already be aware of this, some of you might not. Um, but as of last month, I now actually, I now officially work in um, the beauty industry. <laughs> that's right, brace yourselves. We have launched a hairdryer, Esther. Is it up on screen? Oh, they're getting it back, right. It's incredible, that's what I'm gonna say. Um, it's beautiful. If you wanna know more about it after the service, come speak to me. Uh, the guy that invented it is actually sat here. I won't shamelessly promote him either, but um, it is awesome. I will say this actually, before I started using it, I used to have hair. Um, it's, it's actually pretty powerful. It's a powerful thing. 
The reason I mention this isn't just for sales. Um, it's for us at Dyson. Um, it's a new line of business. It's the beauty industry. You know, we're used to dirt and dust and all that kind of filthy stuff. And actually, this is a wholly different thing that we're doing. And if you know your hair dryers far more than I do, um, this is, is very different. It'd be great if I had a picture. But anyway, um, the fundamental part of it is it has some very different new technologies in it. So it's got some very, it's got a very powerful tiny motor that we've designed. It's got some very clever acoustic engineering, some very clever airflow design, lots of clever stuff going on. Very innovative very different to how hair dryers work. And when I was preparing for this sermon, I was thinking about Paul and the early church, which we'll come on to, and how this all ties together. Um, I was reminded of a, a Newsweek article from 1995. I came across it recently. Um, and it described the internet as a bit of a fad. It said, I'll do my Newsweek voice, the truth is no online database will replace your daily newspaper. No CD-ROM can take the place of a competent teacher, and no computer network will change the way government works. How about electronic publishing? <laughs> Try reading a book on a computer. At best, it's an unpleasant chore. The myopic glow of a clunky computer replaces the friendly pages of a book, and you can't tote that laptop to the beach. Yet Nicholas Negroponte, director of the MIT Media Lab, predicts that we'll soon buy books and newspapers straight over the internet. Sure. That was in 95. It's a great article. I'm sure we can all think of um, examples of things that were barely recognized at the time that go on to become life-changing. Penicillin, the Wright brothers, the first car, uh, the Dyson cordless vacuum cleaner. Um, <laughs> and there are, there are many that, that do go on to become game-changing. There are things that are recognized as supposed to be game-changing, and then they don't. Um, there are things that are plain stupid, which, again, I can't show you. Um, I'll describe it. There's an egg box which you connect. There's an app, and you can see how many eggs are in your egg box in the fridge. If you're out in the house and you really want to know how many eggs you have, and it could be useful, but connect, connect to egg boxes. So we can say this, though. It is rare, it's really rare for innovation to be instantly recognized for its potential. And some of those meaningful inventions took decades for people to notice them. So how, how do we notice them? Well, this morning I want to outline 10 steps. This is when you'll sit back in your chairs and go, 10. Um, I promise I'll be quick. 10 steps along the path of how people typically respond to life-changing inventions. And see if you recognize any of these. Perhaps think about the iPhone or the iPad or good products from a well-known British brand, um, and how they evolved in your life. So someone might say, hey, have you seen the, new, seen the new iPhone? The first response you might say is, never heard of it, never heard of it. Or you might say, oh, yeah, I've heard of it. I don't really understand it. I don't really, I don't really get it. I don't get how it works, anything else. Third response, oh, yeah, I, I understand it. I understand it. I see, I see how it could be useful, maybe. The fourth response. I can see how that could be fun for rich people, not for me. Maybe the fifth response is, I use it, I bought one, I use it, but it's just a toy, really. I don't really I don't use it all the time. The sixth one, maybe, is, it's becoming more useful to me, actually. I'm using it a bit more than I thought. And then after that, I use it all the time. And after that, I could not imagine life without this. And then after that, seriously, people lived without this thing. And then the last one, actually, is less consumer, more government and everything, is 
this thing's getting too powerful, we need to regulate it. Now, the reason I mention all of this, and the reason um, we're sort of talking about innovation and technology and everything else, is because in my mind, there are a number of parallels we can draw between how we respond to life, to data, to life-changing inventions and innovations, and actually how the early church spread and how people responded back then, how they grew in faith. And as we explore our passage today, I'd like us all to think about those 10 responses, maybe, and think about where we sit on our path of faith. Perhaps you've never heard. Perhaps you think faith in Jesus is fun for a few people, but it's not really for me. Perhaps you couldn't imagine life without Christ, or quite possibly religion and the church needs regulating. We'll see. So, our passage today was from the book of Galatians, which is the first 10 verses. And today we're actually kicking off a series for the next seven weeks looking at Galatians, working through the book. Worth saying, actually, if you're visiting, if you want to listen to the rest of the series, it's all on the website. Um, but before we delve into the passage, a bit of background. So, Jesus was born. That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus lived and Jesus was crucified on a cross and he rose again. That's what Easter is all about. He had a group of followers, disciples, 12 disciples, um, who went on to basically set up the early church. And in fact, much of what we know about the early years of Christianity, the spread of the faith, a lot of what we know is recorded in the book of Acts in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. And it's the only historical book in the New Testament. And Acts charts many things, but in particular, it charts the works and the travels of a man named Peter, who was one of the 12 disciples, and Saul, who later became Paul, who's the writer of Galatians that we're reading today. He also wrote much of the rest of the New Testament. And Paul has what we might call a bit of a murky past. His early life was marked by religious eagerness, brutal violence, and a relentless persecution of the church. Now, he was born Saul in what we know as modern-day Turkey. His parents were Pharisees, which basically means Jewish nationalists who struggled, uh, who strictly followed the Old Testament law of Moses. His family were Roman citizens, but viewed Jerusalem as a truly sacred and holy city. And whilst their household spoke Aramaic and they hated anything Greek, Saul could actually speak a bit of Greek and he could speak a bit of Latin. Now, when Saul was 13, he was sent to Palestine to learn and to master Jewish history, the Psalms, the works of the prophets. And he continued his education for a few more years and eventually became a lawyer, teeing him up to become a fully-fledged member of the Sanhedrin, or the Jewish Supreme Court that ruled over Jewish life and religion. And Saul's keenness for his faith and the lack of compromise led him down a path of what we'd probably today call religious extremism. He held garments for those who stoned Peter and he heard, um, who stoned Stephen, sorry, he heard Peter's defense of the gospel and Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. He became determined to eradicate Christians. And his ruthless pursuit was all with the belief he was doing it in the name of God. So in Acts, it says, he began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, he'd put them in prison. Yet, later on in Acts, the most important passage in Saul's life is recorded. In Acts 9, it recounts the meeting of Saul with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Now, before his journey, he was angry with what he'd seen, the spread of Christianity. He was filled with rage. He'd asked the high priest to give him letters, instructing the synagogues in Damascus to give him any Christians so that he could bring them back to Jerusalem and he could imprison them. 
But on the road, Saul was caught in a bright light from heaven, causing him to fall face down on the ground. And the words spoken to him were, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus answers, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And it says, the light of Jesus blinded him. And as he traveled on, he had to rely on his companions. He continued to Damascus. He met a man named Aeneas, who was nervous about meeting him because he knew his reputation. And Saul there received the Holy Spirit. He regained his sight and he was baptized just like today. And he immediately went into synagogues proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. From that moment on, Saul's life was transformed. And he became one of the most important figures in the Bible. Saul became known as Paul and he dedicated his life to sharing the gospel. So here we have an evil man transformed by Christ and now on a mission to share the good news of Jesus with the world. And the good news of Jesus overcoming death, his resurrection, and his forgiveness of sins. So, where does Galatians and our passage today, where does all that fit in? Well, as part of Paul's desire to share the gospel, he went on missionary trips. He went on three in total. He spent much of his time proclaiming Christ to Jesus throughout the Roman world, often at great peril. And we assume that actually he died a martyr's death in the late 60s AD in Rome. Now on these journeys, he spoke with many people and he established churches in the areas he visited, in Galatia being one of those areas. So if you have your passage open in front of you, we'll start to uh, explore it. So, as you probably noticed, when we read the passage earlier, there were two very distinct chunks, verses 1 to 5 and verses 6 to 10. I'm going to take both in turn. So the first five verses, whilst we could look at them as a nice greeting, a bit like, hello, it's me, Paul, hope all's well, how's the cat? Um, in reality, it's much, much more than that. Paul gets straight down to business, and in fact, these first five verses, he effectively gives a preview for the whole construction of the rest of Galatians in just five verses. So in verse one, Paul sets the basis for his authority, why people should listen to him. I am an apostle. My authority comes directly from Christ and God the Father. My mission to the Gentiles was a direct commission from Christ Jesus. And in verse 2, and my brothers, the people that are traveling with me, they agree. So apostle. Apostle means one who is sent. And in many other parts of the New Testament, we see it's used in a rather general sense. In Philippians, in Corinthians, men were sent from churches on missions. But here, Paul uses the phrase in a really particular way. He explicitly says in these opening verses, I am an apostle, not sent by man, i.e. not sent like you might recognize someone from a church being sent. No, I am sent by Christ Jesus. And in verse 2, my brothers agree. So for Paul, he was something different. He was part of a, a band of men, including the prophets of the Old Testament, upon which the church is built. In Ephesians 2, it says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus is the cornerstone. But Paul's apostleship was slightly different. So whilst he saw Jesus and he was sent by him, like the 12 disciples, he had a different mission. He was to share the gospel with the Gentiles, to non-Jews. So later in Galatians, in chapter 2, it says, He who worked through Peter... For the apostleship to the circumcision worked through me also for the Gentiles. Or in other words, he, being Christ Jesus, who sent Peter, one of the twelve disciples, to preach to the circumcision, the Jews, 
also sent me to preach to the Gentiles. Christ Jesus, who sent Peter to preach to the Jews, sent me to preach to the Gentiles. Paul is assured, he's certain of his purpose, of his place, of his commission. So verses 1 and 2 details that authority under which he preaches. And what does he preach? Well, we need to look to verses 3 to 5, the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified on a cross for our sins, that we might know God and have a relationship with him. So let's read those verses again. Verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It all sounds quite biblical and religious. I read it like this, actually. I actually read it in this order. Verse 3, then 5, then 4. And I think it says this. Verse 3, grace may now come to you. Verse 5, glory may now go to God. All because... Christ died for our sins and freed us from the present evil age. And this gospel that Paul's talking about, it's not about being righteous because we're unable to be righteous. It's about allowing Christ's righteousness to be placed on us and our guilt to be placed on him. It's not about rules. It's about understanding and recognizing that we are all sinners, not just the big stuff. Sinners in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, as we say. Sinners through our negligence, through our weaknesses, and through our own deliberate faults. And Christ's sacrifice took away that sin. He wiped the slate clean with God so that we can live how we like, whatever we want, surely. Well, no. If we trust in him, if we live in faith, if we humbly thank Jesus for his sacrifice, we try to live our lives to honor him, living lives of goodness, of faithfulness, of self-control, all those fruits of the Spirit in the Bible. So verses 1 and 2 claim authority for the message, and verses 3 to 5 give a summary of that message. And that is basically how Galatians, the whole book, is constructed. The first part is all about authority, the second part is all about the gospel. So what about the second five verses we read this morning? The second five verses. The background to the book of Galatians is that Paul established these churches. When I say church. We're not just talking about one building, one congregation. We're talking about many churches over a big area. This letter was read by many different people in many places. So after he'd been to Galatia, after about 18 months, he hears some not very great news. The churches in Galatia were being influenced by those who would, as it says in verse 7, pervert the gospel of Christ. What does pervert the gospel mean? Well, there were a group of individuals known as Judaizers, or Judaizing teachers, um, who taught that Gentile Christians, who were the non-Jews that Paul's sharing the gospel with, that they needed to keep the law of Moses, which involved being circumcised, it meant eating the correct food, all that type of stuff, rules, really rigorous religious rules. And these Judaizers, whilst they believe that Jesus uh, is Christ, he's the saviour, their core belief was that the New Testament, the Jesus part of the Bible, hadn't replaced the Old Testament as the ultimate guide and law for God's people. So in addition to faith in Jesus, believers also had to keep this law and these rules and follow all this stuff. And this message was getting through to some of these people in Galatia, in the church there. And Paul clearly thinks it needs addressing. So the tactics of the Judaizers was to discredit Paul, to discredit him as an apostle, to challenge his concept of the gospel of Christ, and to charge his doctrine with leading loose living. 
And we're not just talking about a few people coming in and laying down a few rules that, you know, the music group should all wear the same outfit and the communion wine should only be French. They were challenging the very foundation of their establishment. They were challenging the man who gave them being, who founded them, Paul, that he wasn't appointed by Jesus, that his teachings were not on point, and his interpretation of the law was wrong. So the whole letter from Paul to the Galatians was a response to this threat. And as we'll see over the coming weeks, over the next seven weeks, as we move through this letter, it covers a number of quite big themes. Questions such as Paul's authority, where it came from, the purpose of the Old Testament law, especially in the modern age as it was then, as it is now, the guidelines for us today as Christians to follow. And this letter to the Galatians, importantly, intends to diffuse any criticism of his mission to the Gentiles, to reach out to those people not called in the Old Testament, but who are now, because of Jesus, freely welcomed into God's grace. So this letter has huge themes. In fact, it's frequently been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. That's why we're only doing 10 verses today. Um, So in verses 1 to 5, Paul lays down his authority and the pure gospel message. And then straight away in verses 6 to 10, he starts tackling the biggest issue at stake in the church. If what you're hearing isn't what I taught you, if it isn't the gospel of Jesus, a gospel of salvation from sin, a gospel that doesn't require us to earn salvation, but just ask for faith in him and an inward recognition, if it isn't that, it's worthless. As it says in verse 7, it is really no gospel at all. I love that there's this sort of compassionate rage running beneath these verses. One commentator said, you can't read the first 10 verses of Galatians without feeling that something utterly important is at stake. You can't read Galatians and think, well, this is an interesting piece of religious reflection. Galatians is, as we'll see over the coming weeks, it's an awesome statement of the very central truths of Christianity. So what does all this mean for us today? What can we learn from Paul in these verses? I think there are two important truths that we can take away. Salvation and standards. The first truth is that anyone can be saved. So we've heard Paul was one of the most ruthless men in the Bible. There are stonings actively against the spread of the gospel, shutting down churches, imprisoning imprisoning Christians. Yet a meeting with Christ on the road to Damascus and he's transformed. His life is turned and he becomes one of the most influential and instrumental figureheads in the church. And the second truth is standards. The faith in Christ doesn't require us to meet impossible standards. There are no rules to follow, no procedures to undergo. God's grace is freely given to us because of Christ's immense sacrifice for our sins. So today, as we celebrate Huey's baptism, as God's grace poured out like living water, I want us to think back to the beginning when we looked at those 10 life-changing responses. And my question today really is just how might you respond? And I'd like to add an 11th to the list, which is, I know a little, I'd like to find out more. And that could be just the best responsible. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as Paul was transformed on his journey, transform our hearts and minds today, Lord, as we go from this building and into our weeks. Help us speak with authority about you, sharing that good news that you lived, you died and you rose again for our sins. In your name, amen.